Welcome to the XY Advisor podcast. To join a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice, head to xyadvisor.com. This episode is proudly sponsored by Integrity Life. Just like XY Advisor, Integrity isn't afraid to ask the hard questions. Like, why does quoting life insurance have to be so darn complicated? Why can't you just do it all online? Why can't underwriting be more consistent? And why can't claiming be just that little bit easier? To find out how Integrity is doing all these things differently and more, head to integritylife.com.au forward slash XY. G'day, how's it going? What do you know? Strike like Clayton here from XY, and it's awesome to have Stephen back uh, from Fazio, mate. It's good to see you. Great to be here, Clayton, and thank you for having me along. Of course, of course. Uh, you have been in Victoria in your lovely abode for the last six months or so, but it's starting to starting to sort of loosen up a little bit more. And uh, as far as I can tell. Melbourneites are at least on their way out of lockdown, which is really good news. Um, how's that all been for you down there? Yeah, oh, it's been really strange. I mean, I don't think you know. Don't think you need me to tell you that. I, um, I think the last time the Fasir office is in Sydney, but I'm based out of Melbourne. The last time I was in Sydney was uh, March seventeenth, so I had my <laughs> six month anniversary yesterday of, of, oh, of working from home. <laughs> I've got a house full of university and high school kids all working from home. My wife working from home. It's been very strange, but I think we've all we've all got used to it. We've adapted to the technology. Um, Zoom and Teams have become the the words of the of the time. Uh, <laughs> but we are hopefully coming to an end because it's you know it is frustrating to to be home all the time. But you deal with the cards you dealt, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's a it's a very good point. Now, when we caught up, uh, I'm not sure if I ever told you this, but I think it was in the top, uh, it was either the top one or two podcasts in terms of listenerships that we ever received. So it was, it was really good that last podcast had a lot of really positive feedback on it. Um, there's a bit of time since that happened. So we thought we'd catch up again. There's been some, uh, you know, there's been some really good news that has come out of it. A lot of people are, are actually going through and completing it. Uh, at, the, at the other end, you know, there's been some changes and, and delays to some timelines. So it might be a nice little sort of tidy place to get it all in one place at one time. But from where you're sitting, what's your view? Uh, how, how, is, how does the team feel like it's been rolled out and been accepted or rejected? And, and obviously you're dealing with many stakeholders, but right now, high level, how do you feel? Look, high level, I'm, I'm starting to feel good about what the advice community is doing. When we talked previously, and there's a lot of noise about Fasir and there's a lot of noise about the changes. And I think when we spoke last time, I t- we talked about change management and, you know, big change is difficult. But what we're seeing is thousands of advisors who are actually working through the requirements and doing really, really well. And as part of you think that the net outcome is to look at a lifting of standards to promote advice. Yes. And get consumers confident in using it. What you're seeing is inside all the noise, many thousands of advisors who are acknowledging the need to lift the standards and are actually doing it. And for me, we're at now that uh, a point where we can really start to promote that because there's a very strong body that have done it. And I'm, I'm really keen in when I'm talking and presenting to, to put forward the positive of, of what the advice community is doing and to encourage the advice community itself to stand up and, and beat your chest a bit about yeah. what we're achieving and where we're going to. 
because it's an enormous effort that's going on. Yes, it is. The natural human condition is to dislike change. And the more that that change is forced upon someone, uh, the less enjoyable that is. Now, if you add in uh, a commercial element to it, it becomes quite stressful. So I think there's never going to be a right time to do something like take large leaps forward in expectations of what it means to be an advisor. I don't think that that time will ever, ever arrive, but we are here now. Advisors have, uh, have been, you know, let's, let's say forced on, into this path um, but you're right. I, I'm actually seeing one of the, one of the most um, uplifting things is when a, a list of results, say with the exam, for example, when a list of those results, those pass marks come out, you know, I go onto LinkedIn or even onto the XY platform and, and I, you know, a lot of people are very celebratory about the fact that they've passed and, and there is certainly a bit of a collegiate feel where, uh, you know, a, a lot of people are, are supporting uh, that person in achieving that milestone and uh, those kind of things, you know, that it's being attached to a positive sentiment. You know, you must look on, on as pretty favorably on that. No, not going to do. Um, I, I do look at those photos that get posted on LinkedIn. I mean, it's a bit of positive affirmation for everyone. I think yeah. when you, you think of the effort that's gone in to sit the exam and as you say, the stress and the nervous energy to do it, yes. it's change um, to see people really happy, with what they've done and to see their colleagues happy with what they've done, I think is wonderful. And the more we can promote that, um, I think the more that lifts belief in advice and the more you have the opportunity for advice to move to consumers they may not have moved to before. And so the more, the more of it, the better, the more I see. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. One of our staff members, Gwen, uh, she's been with us. She works at a, a company called Virtual Business Partners for about the last 12 months. She's been with us and um, her view of financial planning is uh, through XY and, and through the Australian lens. And, and she says, you know, being in the Philippines, she's, she's like, I feel like Australians have a much higher ethical uh, way of approaching financial advice. And I said, well, that's only because the standards have been lifted to the point where that's uh, a requirement. Now, I'm not saying that there weren't advisors who were doing this a long time ago. But if you go back to, you know, the, the further back in time you go where there's less standards, then of course, like the behavior just happens to reflect in a lot of ways, the expectation that's placed on them. And if you consider the role or the importance that a financial planner plays into the lives of their clients, there is an expectation of ethics. There is an expectation of professionalism. There, there is an expectation that I feel safe in sending my mother, for example, to go see a financial planner because I know for a fact that the person's going to be looked after. And, and Gwen was sort of saying to me that that's not the view of, of, of financial planning in, in her country, in the Philippines. And I said, well, that's, it's just a matter of time until the rules and regulations and the expectations lift the whole industry uniformly. And I think what's really interesting about that concept and her, her view of it is that as an advisor, I don't think, so if I put my advisor hat on, I don't think that I'm going to operate ethically in any increased fashion after I do an exam. I, I have my internal ethics set, um, but that's not the point. The, I don't think the point is 
to get an individual to say that, oh, you know, I have this bit of paper and I'm more ethical now. I, I don't think that's the point. I think the point is collectively across an industry where just putting a stamp of an expectation that exists and this can't be a bad thing, right? So, so if any profession out there uh, was to do something as pivotal as a, a universal expectation, you're always going to have people with every single opinion across the whole gambit. However, with something like this, as far as I can tell that if we collectively increase what we expect from one another, I think that's a, that's a really good thing. It's a really good outcome. Yeah, I agree. And it's, it's part of being a professional at the end of the day, a profession holds itself to account because the profession is judged in total. And if you look at some of the issues that have been there in the past, those issues then reflect on everyone and, and people rightly say, but I don't behave in that fashion. Yes. But what you've got is parts of the profession of the um, industry that were. Yes. And so that reflects poorly across the board. What you want to do is lift everybody up to the standard of holding each other to account mm. ethically, um, which is essentially of a profession is you're putting the client first at all times. And, and your ethics should always be client first. Yes. Over any other interest, client first. And that's, that's what the code of ethics is driving at. And the exam is there as, as a way of testing your practical knowledge. So, you know, we're all expected to understand our legal requirements. We're expected to understand how to behave ethically. We're expected to know how to construct client advice. What the exam does is give you scenarios to demonstrate you know that. And when you get through that exam, that is that saying, I'm an advisor who understands my obligations. I understand how to give advice. I understand how I behave. And that's what I do day to day. And that lifts the whole industry with it. Yeah. And again, you I think in a position to present yourself as a profession and to present yourself to people as something that people want to use. Yes. The positive lens on all of this is financial advice is actually seen as so important from a top-down point of view that it needs to be done well. Like if you think about it uh, from a historical point of view, it's the newest professional service that exists. And so we don't have the the privilege of being able to glance back at, at hundreds of years of all the, the previous practitioners who came before us to say, oh, actually, these are all the things that have improved and this is how we should operate. It's real. It's in real time. Like it, it, we're, we're, we're collectively pursuing a path forward that people are, are going to make mistakes on. Like I'm not saying that everything that gets asked of financial planners is rational or reasonable, um, but at least we're heading in, a, in the right direction. I, I don't think that there's any question on that. And over time and sort of 20 years from now, we'll look back and be like, oh, actually, we probably didn't need to do these things. That's why we don't do them anymore. But these ones were really helpful and good and we, we kept them. And that's, that's what you know, uh, the doctors went through. That's what surgeons went through hundreds of years ago. And we're, we're at the sort of the embryonic stage of, of taking all this really seriously to the point that anyone should be able to send their mum to a financial, anyone can send a mum to their doctor and be like, okay, I know that they're going to get looked after. And, and when, when advice gets to that stage that everyone says, actually, I can send my mum to a financial planner. I know that they're going to get a good outcome then we've arrived at that position. 
have, do you, do you have much knowledge or, or interaction or engagement with an association called PIFA, the PIFA? I have met them. I haven't, I think I've met them once at this point. Yes. So the most interesting uh, thing in the road to a profession that I've come across in financial planning over the last, I guess, since we spoke was um, there is something called the professional standards council. You probably are aware of all this, but it was all news to me. So the professional standards council dictates what professions are actually a profession and what services are not a profession. And, and the reason that that dictation of what is and isn't, what is and isn't is important. Goodness, that was a difficult sentence. Um, is because once something is clarified as a profession, then it operates under the the legislation of limited liability, right? And so, an accountant and a lawyer and a doctor and a dentist and all these all these groups that operate as a profession actually operate under the limited liability legislation, which is super interesting. And so this group of uh, advisors, there's not many of them, but they're uh, going through this you know, like thousand page submission you know, over multiple years applying to this council. And they're sort of waiting now at some stage you know, to become the first actual professional advisors in Australia. And, and that to me is such an amazing moment. Um, now, how that then spreads across the rest of the industry. I've, I've got no idea, but, but it's Fazia is working on improving advice. You've got this group of, of advisors who are working through this channel and this angle. And then you've got, you know, this part of, of financial advice is working on this and this, and it, it's kind of, there's many stakeholders in many areas working to improve advice. How do you think, or how do you feel about, the nature of financial planning being so fragmented and how, what do you see as a solution to that? Yeah. Okay. So look, I think you're looking at it in context of FASIA, the one beauty of the FASIA legislation, and I'll use the term beauty about legislation so you can hold <laughs> it to that. Um, the, the good thing about the FASIA legislation is it's an umbrella legislation that covers the entire industry. So what it's setting is standards and raising standards for an industry in total which is, in my head, a way to move to being seen as a profession. You've previously had codes of conduct and various things run by different groups, but that generally means that some people meet it and other people don't, depending on whether you're in. Whereas the good thing about the government's legislation around FASIA was it brings in, as I said, that umbrella piece. So everybody must comply with the code. Mm -hmm. Everybody must meet a minimum standard of education. Everybody must do ongoing training at a minimum standard. And that lets, I think, financial advice present itself as a single body, as a single profession, meeting a set of minimum standards that have been set by government, which you will over time exceed. But at this point, to your point of, you know, we're, we're raising standards and it will take time, it naturally takes time. You can't just write a piece of law and it fixes everything. Mm. You bring it in. Over time, people work with it, they grow with it, and you, the profession moves forward. And that's recognised in the timeframes. You think of the timeframe to get the education piece done is out to 2025. The timeframe to do um, the exam was out to the end of 2021. So it's recognised you can't do it tomorrow, but you can work towards it over time. And, and I think as, as the um, industry becomes a profession under that legislation, you can actually present, as I say, a united front. We're all doing this. 
Others will then choose to do more or less else in other places, but as a group, you will have done this one thing. Yeah. What do you do? You see a, a do you see Fasia being a, a body that exists beyond twenty twenty five, or do you see it being a a temporary body that's you know because you're one of the things I, I learned a lot about when we spoke the first time was your remit, right? So you're very clear on what it is that you do and that you don't do. And do you see that remit changing? Do you, do you see an extension um, or do you see once, you know, once the, the, the last people are through, the, through the, the ethical exam and then through the degree or not, and there's a, that really sort of hard cutoff point, is, is it the end of the body or, or, or is, there, uh, is there intention or at least, you know, an idea that, over time, it will change its remit. It will begin to, for example, and this is a really good example, like would you, and, and I guess this is an opinion question, would you like Facia to have the ability to say to government, and I'll give a really specific example, in the Corpse Act, financial planning or financial advice and financial product are the exact same thing. And this is something we kind of covered a little bit last time. And um, that just needs to be separated. Like there's, it's like saying that a doctor and a scalpel is the same thing. It's just, you have just, it needs to be separated. So how and when that happens, I'm not sure, but it needs to happen and it will happen because it's, it must. (laughs) So if we say, okay, the expectations of FASIA is to get everyone to do these handful of things. And this is the timeline, but there are definitely ways for Facia to help advice become the profession. And, and this singular example of separating advice and, and, and product in the Corpse Act is sort of a, a pivotal point. Do you ever, and obviously we're speculating here, this is future bound and this is an opinion and you're not held by any of this. So it's just kind of interesting to, to, uh, to, to hear an idea, but is that something that, uh, is on the realm of possibility. Okay, number of things in there. Um, <laughs> so in terms of the future for Fasia, um, I think that the important thing is that the functions of the body go on. So if you think about it, there is, there's a real rump at the start in terms of pulling together the framework, uh, and there's a big rump in getting the existing advisors to get as many opportunities to sit the exam as we can in the period that they've got to the end of 2021. But if you think post 2021, anyone joining into the industry or into the profession as a, as a new advisor will be doing a PY and they've got to do the exam somewhere along the way. So yes. that, that role is ongoing. The same as education, uh, edu- higher education providers will always come to market with new courses uh, that will meet the foresee requirements. And again, they need to be reviewed and approved. So that, that's ongoing. Um, and then with the standards themselves, they will evolve. I mean, the, the code, uh, PY standards, CPD, they're, they're in their first cut. Um, they'll be used by industry and we'll all learn from them. And there's a requirement under the Act that the standards are reviewed regularly. So FASEA would have a program of coming back and looking at the standards and, and consulting with industry and with other stakeholders, what works, what doesn't work, and think about how they can look going forward. Now, whether that's done by FASEA or it's done by another body, um, that's, that's a government call at the end of the day. Sure. Um, the important thing is that the function itself carries on. 
In terms of Fasia's role in talking to government and others about what we see, but we, we are like any other regulator where we see things, we consult with government and we would say, look, this is something we're seeing. And it's, but ultimately they're government decisions because if yes. they, they're encompassed by the law, goes through parliament to be done. But in any consultation that would come up on the future structure or on, on you know, a single disciplinary body consultation or anything that comes out, I mean, FASIR obviously has a role in providing what we're aware of and what we've seen and, and providing our thoughts to the process. So we would never be backward in doing that. Okay, excellent. I think um, because financial advisors have been through so much change, FASIR just being a singular a very big pillar, but just a singular pillar in a, in, in a bunch of changes that, that have been across the industry over the last 10 years. What would be really interesting uh, and something that we sort of, XY plays this role unofficially, but it would be nice to sort of see it done, uh, you know, in stakeholders that actually have power. And that is a level of protection for um, financial planners not in terms of the changes that need to be done, but in terms of the multiple rapidness of the nature that they have been over the last 10 years. Um, there's been a real desire to improve the professionalism of financial advisors. And the, the goal is great. The downside is you get a bunch of people with opinions who are only in power for a short amount of time and they want to kind of make a bunch of changes and then, it's not that that doesn't exist. It seems like there's not someone who's completely not conflicted in any way, who's, who's sort of uh, looking at the, the landscape of financial planners and measuring those requests for change from all of these different um, places and ensuring some level of uh, stability in the rollout of those. Suicide has been a problem in financial advice for the last, I'd certainly say last 12 months, uh, potentially even longer. And, and I'm not, I'm not saying that it's necessarily even the older advisors who don't want to do an, a degree or anything like that. Th these are, these are in a lot of cases, younger advisors, very capable, have degrees. And yet just those changes and requirements have been rapid to the point of these people feeling uh, completely overwhelmed. And that is a symptom of, I guess, what we're talking about, which is the changes to advice uh, have been probably a little bit too much too soon. And while everyone agrees with the outcome, there needs to be a level of someone monitoring everything and then can sort of say, okay, cool. These are the five things that we want to change. This is our 10 year trajectory to get it done rather than, hey, advisors, you've got six months, get it done tomorrow. And, and, and undoubtedly, these are conversations that you would be having. Um, what sort of awareness does these issues have at the, at the higher end of town? And, um, and what do you see as being a level of protection against this happening again? Because it's so fractured. Yeah, okay, that's a really, that's an excellent question. So in terms of, of, of awareness, I mean, I think, the one thing that a lot of the associations do a really good job on and licensees are doing a good job on is in making government aware of those pressures awesome. and highlighting those. They are, I think, getting some traction on there is a lot of change and how can we facilitate it? But it, it just it's, it is an ongoing discussion point that, you, that needs to be raised. 
it does rest with government over how you do that oversight sort of role that you're talking about. So I, it's I can't really comment for government in anything that I'm doing. Um, but I'm look, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the pressures, and I've, I've said it over and over again. These are big changes, and and the foreseeable one I know is just one of many. Uh, and the point on the mental stress on advisors has been raised with me in a number of occasions. And I, the only thing I say is I'm sympathetic to it. Those who are feeling that, I mean, you, we would all encourage them to talk to someone and to, to meet with someone that can help them. To the extent we become aware of anyone, we would generally try and refer them to their association. To We will have a mechanism to help them. That's about the best we can do. Yep. Uh, in terms of putting the legislation in place, it is it is what it is in terms of timeframes, and that's what we're charged with doing. Yes. We try to do it in a way that's fair and achievable. Yep. And we try to communicate on it. Um, and we don't, we would not stop doing that. Yeah, no, of course. Um, and I guess there's a position that needs to be held and it needs to be held by, and, and I'm open, like I'm open for it to be anyone for, for me. If you know, when I'm talking to the FPA, I'm having very similar conversations, right? I'm saying there needs to be someone somewhere. There needs to be a body that as the requirements are getting filtered down, that there's just some level of total oversight because I think, you know, we had Benjamin Martian, who's a brilliant guy out of the FPA um, you know, come on and say, because of the, the six or seven different uh, bodies and, and, and rules and regulations that financial planning falls under that sometimes it makes it impossible to even successfully achieve all of them at the same time. And, and, uh, and I realized that this isn't a, this is not a, phasier problem or a phasier issue like that that but what i'm i guess what i'm saying is if the remit gets extended to include something like this man i i would be all for it i just i i we just need someone and every chance i get you know in front of a body that ha is one of these sort of six or seven i always try to say look if if you guys are the ones then we'll support it whoever it ends up being uh, uh, and anyone and uh and I'm looking forward to the day that we can manage the, the positive evolution of financial advice in, in, a, in a way that brings as many people along as possible. And which is always the goal. Like that's, that is undoubtedly always the goal. It's just, a, it's just financial planning is this funny little fractured uh, uh, profession, but eventually one day it'll get looked over by a, a singular body. And uh, if it's phasier, you just let me know, give me the call and I'll say, okay, we're, we're fully supportive. <laughs> uh, yeah, I appreciate what you're saying, and I think coordination is important. Um, yeah, and it's something that that we we all try to work to. But yeah, we always we always acknowledge it can be done better, and we all work. Yes, certainly, certainly. Um, what do you see in the professional year? So that that's kind of been something that we've been waiting for. Uh, you know, more detail over time, and 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 where are you? Where's where are you guys at with that? <laughs> I think the professional year is is starting starting to bear some fruit, and there's some green green shoots. I don't like using the term green shoots, but there there is movement there, and this this is the pipeline of new advisors coming into industry. And if you you think about the professional year, it's consistent with what you see in other professions, in that you do your university study or your higher education study, which gives you the technical knowledge. But when you land at your employer, you're pretty green. Yeah. At that Right. And, and your ability to actually know how to practically give advice that's good advice takes some time. 
So what the professional year does is put a structure around that so that someone coming straight out of uni that's lucky enough to get a role with a financial advice firm and has a future as a financial advisor gets a good grounding of the practical application of what they've learned mm. before they're unleashed to give advice of their own accord. Ooh. So what it's doing is you come into the firm, you get linked with a good supervisor who has good knowledge and you'd assume your firm is picking the ones that they would like to mirror the skill set of that advisor. And for the first period, the first quarter or so, you're, ta you're tailing them and you're, you're learning what they do, how they do it, you're watching. You're also able to do admin work and you can do, you know, helping with, with putting things together. And you progress through the quarters to um, supervise client engagement in your second period. So you're, you're in the meetings, you're giving advice, and, but it's supervised. So then it's clearly known that I'm here learning, but this is part of my growth. You sit your exam midway through, which is the practical application exam. So that's the point where you get to test. Okay, I had the knowledge when I came to uni, out of uni. I've spent a couple of quarters tailing this very experienced person and I've learned how to practically apply it. Is my chance in, a, in a, an exam that tests practical application to show that I've learned it? Mm. And when you've done that, you then move into more indirect supervision starting to give advice until you get to the end of your PY and you become a fully fledged advisor. It's, it's just a really good grounding tool. It presents a bit of a challenge in, in, in industry. You know, I hear it from small practitioners of how can I afford to bring a PY student on. Part of that is in looking at what that role can do. So they're in that period where they're learning, they can be doing admin parts. They can be helping with drafting, but things you've got to do anyway they can be doing it as you ground them into becoming a good advisor. So I think there's a bit of a mindset over getting used to the concept and how it works. Uh, the good news is, I mean, I've seen reports about there's about of talking about 20 odd of PY. Um, there's more than that because that's, that's provisional advisors on the ASIC FAR. Mm. You don't go onto the FAR until after you've done your exam. And there's a bit of a lag between people doing their exam and their licensee actually putting them onto the FAR. There's about 160 PY students out there at present. Wow. Um, there's over 50 of them have passed the exam. So they're into the second half of their PY and coming to the point of being um, fully fledged advisors. Uh, at the universities, um, we get an annual return from the universities. Uh, it's at year end. So our last return was in December 2019. We're getting quite close to our next one. At that point, there was over 900 students enrolled in, in FASEA-approved bachelor courses. Wow. That's 900 potential, no guarantee. I mean, the jobs have got to be there and there's got to be the appetite to bring them on. Um, but there's 900 at that point were going through FASEA-approved degrees. So that to me, is, it's, a, it's, a, it's a signal of that the pipeline is starting to appear. Yeah. And as people get more used to the PY and the benefits it can bring in, in, in getting an advisor ready, hopefully it grows a bit more. It's also part of the message of as you get more trust and people understand that um, financial advice has moved to a profession and all these universities are offering courses, you can promote that. And then you probably start to see more students coming through. Uh, as the potentials to come into industry over time. So for me, it's a positive. I yeah. understand it's a change and I understand the challenge it does present to, to advice firms to do it. 
But I think given time, what you'll see is it's a really important component of professionalism. Yeah, I fully agree. Um, I'm not sure what businesses are out there trying to put <clears throat> recent graduates in front of clients to give advice. Uh, but yeah, certainly, I mean, a year, it, the really good thing about what this does is it actually provides a gateway or, or a pathway, I should say, to becoming an advisor. Because that's one of, the, one of the most difficult things is as a graduate, how do you become an advisor? Well, okay, well, you start out as a power planner. Okay, well, if you're good at power planning, no one wants to promote you. Well, I, I shouldn't even use the word promote. No one wants to change your role into financial planning. They want to keep you as a good power planner. And then if you're not a very good power planner, well, then how are you going to get a job as a financial planner? And so uh, the pathway to becoming a financial planner, I think, has been clouded in, in mystery largely. And so this is a really clear uh, and awesome pathway. I think I would have loved something like this coming straight out of uni. Um, really operationally, it's a problem that I've spoken to uh, with a couple of people. Is there an official sort of logbook? Like how do you record yeah. the work that's done? There is on the, on the FASIA website, there are some templates um, okay. and they're not compulsory. They're just examples of how you could do it. Um, Cause we did get that coming back in the, when the legislation first came out. Well, well, how do we record and what do we do? So we produced some, some log books there that, that people can use, um, right. but it's not compulsory for you to do it. Um, but in the policy as well, in the PY policy, it talks about what you need to record and how you, how you go about it. So right. there are resources there that you can use. And um, awesome to hear that there's hundreds of advisors, uh, sorry, hundreds of students doing a degree. I think, um, I think a huge part of FASIA is making sure that the future of advice is well looked after and is seen as an attractive profession to draw in high quality graduates. Um, you know, could, considering our profession competes with investment banking, with accounting, with, you know, legal, like there's a bunch of um, industries that we compete with, and so the better that we look to uh, the external, especially a graduating student, the more likely we are to attract higher quality people, which, which is a great strategy. Do you do any work with um, my mate Alistair Barr and Striver? The, their entire business model is getting graduates into financial planning roles. Is, that, is, there, is there any sort of professional year overlap that you do with those guys? Uh, no, we, we haven't to date, um, but be very open to meet anyone that's, uh, that's able to help in that rep. Because I'm, I'm with you. I think the setting up of a PY as a pathway for, for graduates is really important because it will encourage them to come into financial advice and financial planning type degrees. Yes. Because they can see that it takes them to a profession and they can see that when they go to work, they're not just being dropped into work. They're actually going to get trained and taught how to practically implement what they've learned. Um, so I, I, look, to me, there's opportunity and it's, again, it comes back to what we talked about earlier. This is evolving and it will take time. Yes. Um, the more we encourage it, the better. Uh, in, in reference to that evolving and the standards, um, has there been any changes to any of the standards since launch or, or is there anything flagged for any sort of small changes or where, where's all that sitting at the moment? Yeah. So, I mean, when you think about it, the standards are still really young, yeah. uh, the 1st of January, 2019 for most of them and one January this year for the code. So to an extent they're in that, what I'd call the monitoring period, they've been brought in, we bed them down and, and see how they perform and are they delivering what we thought they would. Um, we will be in the next period coming up to start to look at the standards 
um, run through projects on how they work. If you want the excitement of looking at our corporate plan on the on the website, you'll, of see, course. A, you'll see a diagram of the timeframes around when we intend to look at the standards again. Uh, we've made some changes. Obviously, the, the education standard changes regularly as we as we approve new courses or we approve prior learning, we bring that in. Um, we brought in a new um, education pathway just recently for those who've done both a relevant degree and then a postgraduate relevant degree. So they've done the double. Great. It was set up, you weren't getting any credit, if you like, for your second degree, and that just seemed completely unfair. That is definitely unfair. So, <laughs> So we've, um, having been alerted to that, we've brought it into the standard to give some recognition to that. Uh, we made a change on the CPD standard, um, arising from the COVID situation that we're in. You know, you're required to do 40 hours of CPD within a 12-month period. Of course, the COVID uh, declaration came in right about towards the last quarter for anyone who had an end of June period. And if you were delaying and you, had, you hadn't quite finished your CPD, your chances of getting it done weren't strong. So we... Yeah. We brought a change in to extend the time frame just to, to help out a bit there. And, and that's the sort of thing that we would do if this continues on. What we've done more in, ter- as in terms of the standards is a bit more guide guidance. And the, the one that is coming up for people will be some extra code of ethics guidance. Um, we're just in the last, the last process of reviewing some of that and we'll be coming out to consultation with a, a bit more of a guide on on the code to talk about the intent of each of the standards and how you can apply the standards just to help people execute execute their own professional judgment in terms of the code awesome. uh, and respond some of the queries we've had so it's ongoing um in terms of the actual standards themselves it's it's over the next couple of years we'll start to revisit them to have a look at whether they're doing what we wanted them to do in the first instance that's fantastic yeah because and and to, to be honest, that's a really, really good feature of this set of the, of the code and of the standards is that it can adapt to what actually produces the right outcomes or not. Because the problem with regulations, if it's just signed and forgotten about, you know, for 20 or 30 years, a la advice and product being attached in, in the Corpse Act, and it's never looked at again, then uh, it's so hard to, to, you know, to look at it in hindsight and be like, well, that was a mistake, but we didn't know at the time. So that's an encouraging point that Bezier is in a position to notice and pay attention to what the effects are and what the results are from the standards in the code um, and then make changes. And, and to me, that's a really positive thing. I, di- I didn't realize that, uh, that that was one of the attributes of what your remit was, was to make sure that the outcomes match the 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 goals in the first place to me that is fantastic news yeah and look it, it is it's a characteristic of that i agree is important for what we're doing um it's not dissimilar to past roles that i've been in where you 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 stand back and look at your standards and you issue new guidance because the world as you say doesn't stand still yeah and it's only when you're applying the standards that you start to get a feel for that well this is actually working but these are some of the burrs that we need addressed and the important thing for a, a regulator is that you actually listen to that and make adjustment as you go. And that's pleasingly built into the Corpse Act that we must regularly review them. So we actually don't have a choice. Um, <laughs> do it anyway, but we don't have a choice. So that's, I think, is, I agree with it. it's a positive and it's, it's the next step in the work that we'll be doing. Um, I'm sure that there's advisors who are listening to this who are screaming through their headphones, 
how do we contribute to the reviews? So, um, so without sort of overburdening you, your, you know, your inbox, is there, I remember last time we spoke that there was somewhat of a formal way to submit these opinions. Does that still exist? And, and what is that again? Each, any change that we propose to make to the, to the legislative instruments, which are effectively the standards, we consult. And, and if you look at the Corps Act, there's a whole range of people we, can, we need to consult with. Uh, we choose to consult across all stakeholders. Uh, and the way we do that is we release through the website the, the documents for consultation. They're generally open for consultation for a period of a month. Could be longer if it's a really big piece or if it's a really minor piece, it might be shorter. The key is to get yourself onto the FASIA alerts um, so that when that comes, you can contribute to it. It doesn't have to only be in the consultation period. We have an inquiries box and a contacts box on the website. So if there are things that people want to contact us with, happy for that along the way, because that informs the work that we will do in the future. But the key is that if you do see or foresee a piece of consultation coming out and you want to contribute, you should contribute because it's all the voices that help us determine what the right outcome is. That's fantastic. Um, we'd be interested. Uh, well, it depends if, if uh, is the motivation to to get as many responses as possible or to reduce the amount of responses? Because if the intention is to get as many as possible, what we could do is when those, when those month windows open, we could, you know, send it out to our, to our community. Um, but at the same time, like, I don't want to create an environment where the, you know, where people are responding to things perhaps they hadn't thought too much about. So, um, you know, we can take that offline and, and have a think about it later. But I'm, I'm sure that there's, in, in XY, there's a lot of really talented, really intelligent, thoughtful advisors. That's, that's kind of where we sit in the market. Um, to the point that I'm consistently blown away by people that, are, that freely give their time and effort. Um, they're, they're, just off the top of my head, there's a gentleman on, uh, on XY called Michael Miller. I'm not sure if you know him, he's, but he's, he's just one of the most thoughtful from a uh, I guess from a regulatory point of view advisors I've ever met and and but at the same time like he's so interested in seeing the positive evolution of financial advice that he's constantly just delivering value to other advisors so other advisors will come in and ask a question he's you know generally and this is over a long period of time has been uh, has been really helping a lot of people so when when the chance for people to be uh, suggested or submitted as a as a potential for the board of Phasia, for example, this is just as an example, um, is that something you're looking for as much market feedback on as possible, or or does your team well, sort of look at it and identify who you're interested in? Well, it's interesting, and that's this question I've been asked before. It's uh, believe it or not, Phasia doesn't appoint its board members. Oh, and- right. We don't determine who they are. They're, bought, they're appointed by government. Interesting. So, so in, in feeding into who you'd like to be on a foresee board, um, the minister's office is, a, is where you would make that submission. And, and the, the Corporations Act actually specifies the structure of the foresee board. Right. So the board has to have um, three members with um, financial services experience. So yes. coming out of the advice community, three members with a consumer background, Mm. must have an ethicist, an educationalist, and an independent chair. And those, they're appointed by the government. The, the, consumer, uh, the consumer one seems a little bit strange to me. Um, what, would, what would a consumer advocate, for example, how would they benefit a profession who 
I mean, it's one thing to say we're client centric, but yeah, how, how does that role fit in? So the, the ultimate recipient of your of a financial advisor's advice is a consumer. Yes. So the role of, the, of, of those directors on the board is they're hearing from consumers of advice what okay. they think about the standard of advice, what they think about the professionalism, what they look for in an advisor, and they can bring that lens into the discussion, which together marries with the professionals. So this is what we're trying to achieve. Consumers can tell you how that's being received and how you could possibly do that in a different manner to get the outcome you're after. So that I find in that board, there's quite a good balance between those two. Interesting. Uh, in being able to provide good input to where you're heading. Okay. No, no, no. That, I mean, that makes sense. Okay. So, so, uh, so the government and the minister's office is, is any, anything to do with the board members um, with anything to do with feedback. And uh, like, I could imagine, you know, a full inbox with hundreds of emails or giving individual opinions would be quite exhaustive. Um, and, and I'd imagine sort of collective um, opinions are probably more of interest to you. So you're getting sort of data across, you know, what the, what, what the view is across, you know, multiple advisors. Um, I'm sure that there's someone listening who, who can do something on the latter there. I'd, I'd be interested in perhaps contributing to that um, from the XY's point of view, um, purely just from a, but, but not from a let the hounds loose kind of, kind of view, right? Like, yeah, not, not, you know, don't a hundred people in, you know, email, but rather maybe contributing. So, what we might do as, as an idea is we, we have a research arm of the, of the company is maybe we'll send out um, whenever this window is open, we might send out, get some feedback sort of in a, in a quantitative way. So it's easy to understand. And, and uh, yeah, we might look to actually start contributing to that because um, while, while we have no authority in any sense of the matter, but we, we certainly do, we are the center of conversation for the advice industry. So, uh, maybe maybe we can contribute like that yeah and look we're pleased as that i don't have an opinion on how how the consultation comes in it's more important to me that we're hearing the voices right. and the last thing you want is at the end of it people are saying yeah but i had a different view and i didn't get to put it forward it's important in terms of informing the board of foresee and its final decisions that it hears the various inputs and the various opinions and it ultimately has to make a decision so it's it's, it's at the end of it, not everybody gets exactly what they wanted, but the important thing is that you actually hear the cogent arguments for any change or whatever it may be. So look, we, we're happy to take it in whatever form it comes in terms of consultation. Brilliant answer, Stephen. Mate, thank you so much for coming back. Uh, it's awesome to, it, it's, it's also good to see um, the positives that have come out of the last 12 months. You, I mean, you were you were put into a tough, tough, tough position at the time. Well, at least from where I was sitting, you know, uh, you know, leading this uh, new, new body. And um, it, during, you know, a lot of change was happening at the time. And um, look, you know, congratulations on the work that you and your team have done. Like I said, the majority of conversations and views that I see regarding FACIA are, are all really positive, are all, you know, thankful that they've joined the club, so to speak of, um, you know, I'm sure that there's, methods and and ways that we you can get as many of those advisors through those um through those hoops as possible and 
I'm sure that there's going to be outliers that it's difficult for as well. And then I'm sure that's just one of the many complexities of your role, but mate, thank you so much for coming on. It's awesome to hear sort of behind the scenes, um, the views and, and what you guys are up to. So appreciate your time. Terrific, Clayton. Pleasure to come along. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, mate.